0: Please be seated. Is the sound all right? Everything clear? Okay. Most of us would have no difficulty with the following statement. We may be a talking college, but what we talk about is books. We are, that is to say, a bookish college. But what is bookishness? Now that is not so easy to say. Our lecturer tonight, Sven Burkertz, has thought a lot about what bookishness is and about how it's good and what is bad for it. He has put his thoughts about all that into many essays. Some of these have been collected into a book. Its title is The Gutenberg Elegies. The fate of reading in an electronic age. He has also edited a book with the intriguing title, Tolstoy's Dictaphone, Technology and the Muse. He teaches writing at Mount Holyoke College and is on the core faculty of the Bennington Writing Seminars. His essays and reviews have been published in such magazines as Harper's, The Atlantic, and the New York Times Book Review. Tonight, Mr. Burkitts will speak to us about the spirit of the book in the age of the Internet. I should add that even those up-to-date members of the audience who might prefer virtual to real presence might find it refreshing to join us for a question period after the lecture and the subsequent coffee break in what we call not the chat room, but the conversation room. I should also mention um, there's been a little failure of communication. Would the student who is to be driving Mr. Burkertz to the airport tomorrow morning, please uh, come up to him or to me um, during the break and let us know what time Mr. Burkertz will be picked up. Otherwise, I drive to the airport tomorrow morning. <laughs> and now please welcome Mr. Sven Burkertz.
1: Thank you very much. It's kind of traditional, at least with me, that uh, I very often am asked to supply a title for a talk or a presentation long before I've begun to sit down and work it through and see what it is that in fact I have to say. And uh, that was true in this case as well. I think my title is close enough, but I did change it. Um, it's now called uh, Virtuality is Its Own Reward. This is gonna be, I'm gonna do something that I've never done before. Um, and I debated quite a bit whether to do it. Um, and I'll try to explain. I wrote a piece on you know, that topic And part of what the piece itself, part of the dynamic of it, in a way, it tries to incorporate the process whereby I I arrived at the ideas and the incentive to write on this topic. And this has to do with my reading of several um, books, which I will be referring to as I talk. Now, the unusual thing I'm going to do is that one of the books is a book that I was asked to review and therefore I was reading it uh, in a very specific way and I read it uh, well with pencil in hand and annotating and sort of allowing the argument of the book to enter my life in certain ways as often happens when you are um, called upon to give your views on something and I'm going to begin not by reading um, the piece Virtuality is Its Own Reward, but by reading a fairly short review of one of the books, which is then part of the essay. So I'm, I've never really read a review in a public context before, but I really think that um, it may be relevant both to understanding how the thought process got underway, but it also may supply just a little bit more of a thematic backdrop to kind of enrich what comes later and may become part of the conversation that we hold after uh, we leave this room. Uh, The book in question is uh, recently published just at the end of the summer. It's by a woman named Janet H. Murray. It's called Hamlet on the Holodeck, The Future of Narrative in Cyberspace. So this first little uh, chunk is the review. I was asked by a newspaper in Toronto, the Toronto Globe and Mail, to offer up my views. MIT seems to be sending forth cyber utopians these days faster than us few techno skeptics can muster our responses. Prominent exemplars include Media Lab founder Nicholas Negroponte, whose being digital prophesied the full transformation of our ways of living by microchip powered technologies and theoretician-therapist Sherry Turkle, who in Life on the Screen, Identity in the Age of the Internet, preached the imminent renovation of our fundamental understanding of identity in the triumph of circuited communications. Now, Janet H. Murray, a professor of interactive fiction writing in MIT's Film and Media Studies program, brings us Hamlet on the Holodeck, the Future of Narrative in Cyberspace an enthusiastically revolutionary scenario promoting the imminent digital apotheosis of mankind's most ancient art, storytelling. The holodeck, or I may not even be pronouncing that correctly, holodeck. The holodeck, for anyone who does not know, and I didn't, was first introduced on Star Trek, The Next Generation. It is, quote, an empty black cube covered in white grid lines, upon which a computer can project elaborate simulations, a universal fantasy machine, a kind of storytelling genie in the lamp," Murray uses the holodeck as a kind of emblem for what she sees as the coming glory days of narrative, the intersection of the storytelling impulse with the mind-boggling capabilities of digital media. The time is right, believes Murray. The arts in our century have been pushing steadily against the limits of linear narration. The pressure comes from the times themselves. Quote, to be alive in the 20th century, she writes, is to be aware of the alternative possible selves, of alternative possible worlds, and of the limitless intersecting stories of the actual world, Unquote. To this great opening of boundaries, computers are ideally suited. They have four essential properties that enable the creation of digital environments. They are procedural, able to execute a series of rules. Participatory, allowing the user to engage and influence activity. Spatial, creating dimensional illusion. And encyclopedic, able to store and retrieve immense amounts of data. These properties, already apparent in existing uses like MUDs, multiple user dungeons, and hypertext ventures, complexly linked electronic texts, will soon bring about a whole new order of narrative-based experiences, including compelling interactive adventures, hugely expanded viewing options with myriad subplots, auxiliary settings and scenes, etc., and engagements we can't begin to feature yet all of them based upon immersion, enhanced illusion, agency, the user's sense of control, and transformation, the sense of being able to shape outcomes. At first, Murray's descriptions are intriguing. She writes crisply and with great conviction, swaying us to think that these innovations are simply creative responses to the conditions of an emergent electronic culture But upon reflection, certain assumptions and assertions begin to seem troubling. First, Murray does not seem to make any differentiation between realms of entertainment and art. In her zeal to enshrine narrative, she puts all narratives, be they simulation games or efforts at higher expressive art, on the same basic level. There's no sense of hierarchy or of play and deeper aesthetic engagement calling upon different parts of the sensibility. Second, and this is related, Murray never makes it clear what, if any, strictures prevail here. Just how do interactivity and illusionism coexist? Isn't artistic illusion achieved in the imagination of the beholder really a function of limited access? These are hard questions, but they need to be asked. More may not be better, maybe, to reverse the old formulation, less. Then there is the counter-utopian reality of genre evolution. Quote, as digital narrative develops into maturity, Murray ventures, the associational wildernesses will acquire more coherence and the combat games will give way to the portrayal of more complex processes. Unquote. So we would like to believe. But if we take movies as a correlative, we can see that quite the opposite has happened. Perceived audience demand has largely replaced complexity with the old staples, violence and sex. But it is not until we get to the last chapters of the book that Murray's excited conjuring of scenarios begins to suggest the still darker side. She writes, for instance, quote, "In any literary medium, characters are illusions. Emma Bovary, Emma Bovary, David Copperfield, and huckleberry finn are." word masses, as E.M. Forster reminds us, and when they are translated to the movie screen, they exist only as montages of camera shots, pasted snippets of light and sound. What difference will it make, then, to create characters from bits, from digitized words, images, sounds, and, most significantly, from instructions for behavior? Unquote. Never mind that these montages and pasted snippets are also carefully garnered images of the human. What sounds the warning buzzer is that last phrase, as if behavior could ever create character, as if the foundation rule of artistic fiction were not the exact reverse, that behavior must emerge from character. This reversal of premises, trivial as it may seem, is when examined closely, a key to what is wrong with the assumptions of the digerati. What do I mean? At the very end of Murray's book, flashing like a glimpse of the skull beneath the skin, comes this most vexing assertion. Quote, we fear the computer as a distorting funhouse mirror of the human brain, but with the help of the narrative imagination, it might become a cathedral in which to celebrate human consciousness as a function of our neurology. Which is to say, is it not, that we are finally nothing more than the functioning of our material networks? Are, in the words of MIT's artificial intelligence guru, Marvin Minsky, meat? Eventually reproducible, maybe even expendable. That is the real narrative of cyberspace, and no hosannas about breakthrough developments should obscure the reductive vision of the human that is at their root. Okay, that's the backdrop, and I hope it proves to have been relevant to do that. Maybe it won't, but, you know, we'll take that risk. So, virtuality is its own reward. When I think about reading, I tend to imagine it as a more or less continuous experience. One book begun, read, interrupted, resumed, and completed. But in fact, this is more the exception than the rule. Often as not, I will have two, three, maybe even four things going at once. A novel undertaken for pleasure, something else by a friend or acquaintance, pleasure mixed with obligation, enjoyment tempered by the trepidation of finding the right thing to say, a work assigned for a class that now needs to be gone through with a teacherly eye, and maybe a book that I've been asked to review. What always amazes me about these situations is that they are possible. The mind can, it appears, move from one work to another as easily as the person moves from room to room. More interesting still, it can keep the experiences intact and separate, returning to one work after being with another with scarcely a seam showing, and then one hour later doing the same with an altogether different book, Considering this, one can hardly resist conceptualizing the mind as a spatial entity, something with compartments and walls. Sometimes, though, the boundaries are put under pressure or they collapse altogether. Two reading experiences move out of quarantine and mingle. In near sleep, or in moments when the mind lets down its guard, gets lazy, worlds get stirred together. Maybe there's something kindred, For a moment, I cannot remember which book a certain sensation or character belongs to. I feel as I do sometimes in dreams when two identities have been superimposed to create some new person who manages yet to seem familiar. Or else the opposite happens. Two books are so different that they catalyze the sensibility in mysterious ways until just going through the day feels like taking part in an argument. This happened to me recently in an especially vivid way. I was reading, on parallel tracks, Independent People by the great Icelandic novelist Haldor Laxness, believe it or not, and also reading, for review, Janet Murray's Hamlet on the Holodeck, The Future of Narrative in Cyberspace. The Laxness, a slow, utterly immersing saga of life on a remote farmstead in Iceland I read with the greatest fulfillment. I was emotionally engaged and for extended moments had the feeling that I had parted the curtain of words and was myself there in that rude and thrilling place. The Murray, as might be expected, I read through the eye of the intellect. Pencil in hand, I followed the unspooling thread of her argument, making checks where I agreed, dissenting with scrawled exclamations. And for a week or so, I moved from the one to the other, reading Murray in the more focused morning hours or at my desk, then stretching out in more relaxed poses with laxness on the porch in the afternoon, in bed before sleep. My point is this, that in some way I will likely never comprehend the two lines of response, lines which normally would be separate, began to cross and recross, In bookless moments, pushing a shopping cart or walking in the neighborhood with one of my kids, I would suddenly surprise myself in agitated debate. Referring to one book, then the other, I found I was abstracting for myself a crucial opposition, one that seemed to explain a great deal about our contemporary situation. Let me cite from each author a representative passage from Laxness, and there are two paragraphs here. Dinner in the meadow was like all true joy, sweetest in anticipation. The salt codfish and the rye bread, the thin porridge and the sour blood pudding, the interminable rain that streamed down into these dishes while they were busy eating. A more rigid menu could not have been found anywhere. The fish gave off a vigorous odor in the rain and the smell hung in the nostrils for hours afterwards, in the clothes, on the hands, Never did the children long so much for food as when they stood up from their meal under the hay rick. Whatever the weather, Biartur always left the others when the meal was over. He would lie down on a truss of hay with his hat over his face and fall asleep at once. As soon as he moved in his sleep, he would roll off the truss, sometimes into a pool, and would be awake immediately, which pleased him greatly." He considered that it was proper for a man to sleep for four minutes during the daytime, and he was always in a bad temper if he slept longer. The women folk wormed in under the hayrick when they had finished eating. Then the shivering would begin, for they were sitting on wet grass, and they would rise with hands benumbed and pins and needles in their legs and go look for their rakes. And if Bjartur heard them complaining about the damp, he would reply that it was pretty miserable wretches that minded at all whether they were wet or dry. He could not understand why such people had been born. Quote, it's nothing but damned eccentricity to want to be dry, he would say. I've been wet more than half my life and never been a whit the worse for it. You can imagine this is about a 600-page book and it's in sort of this feeling. And in a very different mode from Murray. The final quarter of the 20th century marks the beginning of the digital age. Starting in the 1970s, computers have become cheaper, faster, more capacious, and more connected to one another at exponential rates of improvement, merging previously disparate technologies of communication and representation into a single medium. The networked computer acts like a telephone in offering one-to-one real-time communication, like a television in broadcasting moving pictures like an auditorium in bringing groups together for lectures and discussion, like a library in offering vast amounts of textual information for reference, like a museum in its ordered presentation of visual information, like a billboard, a radio, a game board, and even like a manuscript in its revival of scrolling text. All the major representational formats of the previous 5,000 years of human history have now been translated into digital form. There's nothing that human beings have created that cannot be represented in this protean environment, from the cave paintings of Lascaux to real-time photographs of Jupiter, from the Dead Sea Scrolls to Shakespeare's first folio, from walk-through models of Greek temples to Edison's first movies. And the digital domain is assimilating greater powers of representation all the time, as researchers try to build within it a virtual reality that is as deep and rich as reality itself. Granted, the first is a passage of imaginative writing, a moment from a novel, while the second is from a work of speculative reflection. These are not really fair items for comparison. But as my real interest lies in tracing the roots of a particular train of thought, I hope I may be forgiven the clashing opposition Reading as I did, back and forth, I suddenly found myself confronting the starkest possible contrast of worldviews, a contrast which bears importantly, I think, on our current psychological situation. Those two worldviews are basically of the real and of the virtual, two understandings that increasingly combine to determine our experience of the world. This is all you must understand very recent. Before the last few decades, the real had no strong opposing term, except perhaps unreal, which carried a far more limited meaning. The real was an uncontested concept, was that which was. It was the basis, the stuff of earthly existence, a category comprising all of the facts of life. The Laxness passage presents a particularly limiting instance but it can stand as an emblem for the basic way of things up until the modern period. Though I would note that the novel is set in the early years of our century and note too that there are obviously a great many places still where the basic terms of life are not very different from those represented by laxness. This original sense of the real assumes nature as the matrix, the ground of existence with the elements imposing fundamental constraints on human endeavor. It proposes geographical rootedness with communities tied to locale. Communication is naturally seen as taking place in real presence, face-to-face, with interactions tending to be finite in number and recurrent. Limits set by space and time are absolute, with the consequence that there is an enormous gulf between the information-laden immediate surroundings, and the rest of the world, which is present as rumor and imagination conjure it outside the bounds of the known. Here is life, in other words, as it was known through all the epochs until modernity. While this is not the way most of us experience the world, it is nonetheless the basic context in which many of our laws and institutions originated. Our sense of property, of contract, the language in which our charters and agreements are written, these strongly reflect the prior world. And as Henry Louis Gates observed in a recent New Yorker essay, referring to arguments by philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, quote, the moral terms that history has bequeathed us belong to theories that we've largely forgotten. Ours is a curious interregnum. Certain basic assumptions still shape our views and attitudes significantly. Even as the original contexts of those assumptions have been radically transformed, we still cherish our ideals of folksy neighborliness or invoke the beauties and hardships of undomesticated nature, never mind that we tend to live in urban settings and get out into a park maybe twice a year. But now consider the assumptions about the world that underlie the passage from Janet Murray's book. Here is a world divorced from nature utterly in which the idea of geographical community has been exploded and then reconstituted electronically. A world in which interactions are largely mediated, where few temporal or spatial constraints apply. A world in which hard physical labor, indeed the performance of many time-consuming tasks, has been radically reduced. A world so thoroughly saturated by information that traditional contexts are entirely outmoded, a world, in short, gone virtual. Virtual. The term needs defining. Virtual means, according to my dictionary, quote, existing or resulting in essence or effect, though not in actual fact, form, or name. Unquote. That's a bit too abstract to be useful. Let me add my own ad hoc characterization. The virtual as we now understand it is that which has replaced or has been superimposed upon the real. It is the voice without the physical presence, the image pixelated to resemble the thing. It is any interaction that depends in key ways on digital technology. The virtual is elusive and it takes on many forms. Sometimes the line is hard to draw. Simulations on computer screens are obvious instances. But what of the hybrid experience, the telephone encounter that begins as a series of taped instructions but eventually delivers an actual voice? We think of the voice as real in comparison to the taped messages. But in a context of true presence, it is a mediation. What do we say about chickens that are grown in factories, fed with chemicals, never allowed to touch real soil, never exposed to natural daylight? Are they still real chickens? The conditions of life as understood for centuries, if not millennia, have been overtaken and modified by the forces of virtuality. The assumptions of globalness and simultaneity in communication, of reproducibility, of information stored as code, these all partake of the spirit of virtuality. The controlled environments of malls, television shopping channels, transactions carried on without money, using only plastic cards. The virtual is, in part, an abstraction of the real. Some will object, and rightly, that abstractions like this have an ancient pedigree, that the printed word and currency, to take two obvious examples, are symbolic derivations from the real. And it's true. Our understanding of the concept must be amended slightly Proposing now that the virtual be seen as a second-order abstraction, a removal from the removed, the credit card here being the perfect example, or the printed word translated into binary code. But so long as we find ourselves occupied in splitting hairs, we will get nowhere. The virtual, for my purposes, is best understood as a spirit, a spirit that has as its express purpose the transcendence of the age-old givens time, space, nature. My focus, my theme, if you will, is the incursion of the virtual upon the real. And the difficulty I face is one of finding purchase. For the scenario is not the revolutionary scenario of overthrow. It is rather one of encroachment and displacement. A new initiative or technology is implemented side by side with the old. The ATM is set up in the lobby of the bank while the tellers continue to work inside. Only gradually does the former procedure begin to push aside the latter. So it is with email and the office memo, with the word processor and the typewriter, the night letter and the fax. The changes come across a vast spectrum, many at once. Each one factors a kind of abstraction into our lives, removes us a bit more from the original way of things. Together, gradually, subtly, the modifications begin to alter our outlook. But when transformation takes place by way of such increments, it is exceedingly difficult to think back, to hold on to a picture of how it was, even recently. Try to imagine now a world in which people smoked in offices, in stores, in airplanes, where it was a mark of courtesy to extend your pack to another. 20, even 15 years ago, it was the way of things by which I don't at all mean to call back the days of unbridled cigarette consumption or suggest that they were in any way better, I would only indicate in how short a time the feeling of how things are can change. Virtuality is moving in on us on a great many fronts, and we have a hard time marking out the line of difference. How readily we take up the screen, a few decades of TV prepared the way, the click, how willingly we accept the email as an instance of legitimate communication, the theme park experience as a substitute for the more taxing option of searching out a real, uncanned entertainment. Less and less, it seems, we think it unusual to spend our days indoors among various appliances, moving about as if in a cloud system of information, rather data from radio, TV, accumulated messages on a tape or screen, but we need not confine ourselves to the myriad new technological entertainments and exchanges that Murray considers in her book. We need only consult certain salient features of what might be called our cultural landscape. The Disney empire is an obvious place to begin. Consider the enormous expansion and diversification the stretch of its corporate tentacles after any remaining venue, any entertainment possibility that has not yet been rationalized and systematized and squeezed to yield its last dollar. Disney is pernicious because it has wedded the new technology so effectively to the concept, the lifestyle of entertainment, in the process laying waste to the independent, the idiosyncratic, and in a notable sense to truth value itself. It is almost as if the corporation were waging war on history, on the terms of actuality. A whole generation of schoolchildren has now come of age viewing and viewing again animations like Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, or imminently, Anastasia. Each by itself seems innocent enough, and God knows I've spent hours on their near outskirts trying to focus on something else. But collectively, they sell the powerful notion of the past, actual or literary, as a ground, a source for entertainment. Of course, this has always been the Disney approach, but now with the expansion of the empire and with the new access tools of the video cassette and audio tape, we see an ever greater colonization of the American and global collective imagination. The accompanying products, the t-shirts and caps, the tie-in toys, spread the gospel, and the great theme parks, showplaces of virtuality, are the mother churches. Images proliferate, and the net effect is to undo and modify the difficult and often undramatic contours of historical actuality. Not in fact, but in the minds of the young, which is precisely where facts begin to matter. Then there is celebration, the community, conceived and built by the Disney Corporation. Celebration, a Florida town created from scratch at the cost of $2.5 billion to simulate an authentic American small town. Or rather, such a town as it may have been imagined by Norman Rockwell, master of airbrush nostalgia. According to a Harper's Magazine article by Russ Reimer, the original sales brochure began. This is a great quote, quote There was a place where neighbors greeted neighbors in the quiet of summer twilight. Continues, where children chased fireflies and porch swings provided easy refuge from the cares of the day. The movie house showed cartoons on Saturday. The grocery store delivered, end of the quote. The available homes were snapped up. People appeared to be clamoring for something, a feeling, a sense of connection, a fantasy, Something in any case that the Disney people recognized and pandered to. As Reimer writes about Walt Disney, the original visionary and entrepreneur, he was, quote, the Louis Pasteur of history, who perfected ways to protect people from the viral effects of memory by injecting it back into them in denatured form. That's a great quote. Virtuality. Voila. The capstone irony of the Celebration Initiative came sometime after the first wave of settlement when residents began to remark on the lack of an actual history. The Disney people hit on the idea of creating one. It's true. Something they called a backstory. Not so much literal as implied, the Celebration backstory operated at the level of effects. In the words of Pete Rommel, president of Disney Design and Development, quote, hopefully someday you'll be able to walk down a street or sit someplace and kind of close your eyes and get some comfort that there are people who have been here before you. <laughs> that this feels like a place that has a tradition, even though it doesn't, <laughs> unquote. Again, virtuality in a nutshell. A kindred but substantially different phenomenon, and one which we will hear a great deal about in the years to come, is cloning. I can only touch on it here. Cloning is virtuality made actual. The real given body through cellular simulation. We have not heard the last of Dolly, the sheep. Indeed, the fact of her making may well be classed as the first true inaugurating event of the new millennium. The implications are many. But biophysicist Gregory Stock, author of Meta Man, the merging of humans and machines into a global superorganism, gets us right to the core issue. Quote, this is a very significant moment. We are becoming the objects of our own technological processes. We are seizing control of our own evolution and there is the natural feeling that maybe we shouldn't, unquote. Speculating on the eventuality of human cloning, Stock observes, quote, a clone would be viewed as a person, just as an identical twin is. And before long, it's likely we'll even become emotionally tied to the increasingly sophisticated electronic devices around us. Once they mimic conscious behavior, we will like them and may not want to turn them off. Why would we feel any less attached to modified humans if anything, genetic engineering is going to expand our sense of what it means to be human. What, you may ask, do these far-reaching and speculative concerns have to do with reading? The connection is more immediate than might at first, than we might at first suspect. First, however, a few background observations. No one would dispute the fact that the contexts of reading have been radically transformed in the last few decades. Before the proliferation of new digital media, the technologies Murray celebrates in her book, reading has suffered a decline, both practical and symbolic. That is to say, fewer and fewer people, especially the young, nourish or sustain the habits of print literacy. True, bookstores flourish and books are sold in large quantities, but as publishers, editors, and booksellers will all testify, serious reading appears to be in trouble. Immersed, directed reading is waning as new cognitive needs and reflexes arise. Indeed, the idea of reading has become perversely and negatively entangled with the excitements of screen-based technology with the result that as these media gain in public visibility, book reading begins to look like something we are evolving away from, and various public indicators confirm it. Struggling to correlate finite budgets to infinite needs, libraries at every level are allocating more and more of their funds for computer equipment and dramatically less for the purchase of books. Publishers, frightened by falling profit margins, and required to up those margins by their new corporate owners put more and more focus on sure-fire blockbusters increasingly passing on passing on literary work even first-rate literary work and teachers cowed by evaluation systems and desperate to please their students simplify their syllabuses and soften the reading requirement Academ- academic reading has except for here obviously become the equivalent of slow-pitch baseball What does all this portend? Are we moving through an adjustment trough, awaiting correction, or is there no going back? Maybe the demands of late modern living have changed once and for all, and new aptitudes and perspectives, non-reading aptitudes are favored. What What, we should ask, is so irreplaceable about reading anyway? Why shouldn't we accept the new media options their storage, linkage, and phenomenal browsing capabilities as supplements, even replacements. Isn't it merely an exercise in sentimentality to lament the loss of the lone individual turning the pages of a work of literature? There are various countering arguments one could mount, and I have tried to mount some of them elsewhere, about reading as a preservation of duration, the time experience most conducive to reflection, reading as enforcing attentiveness in an environment of steady distraction, reading as the creation, creating of a preserve of selfhood, of subjectivity. And on each of these topics, there is more to be said. But what interests me here is something very specific, the question of linguistic imagination. What happens when we read? And how does reading affect the way we live? The main thing to assert right at the outset is that the reading of imaginative literature, while it is often associated in people's minds with escape, with getting away from the world, is in fact the very opposite. It is a sustained and highly specific act of processing reality. Rather than a getting away, it is a getting at. This needs to be demonstrated and can be. Here again is laxness, just a portion now of the longer passage I cited. Dinner in the meadow was like all true joy, sweetest in anticipation. The salt codfish and the rye bread, the thin porridge and the sour blood pudding, the interminable rain that streamed down into those dishes while they were busy eating. A more rigid menu could not have been found anywhere. The fish gave off a vigorous odor in the rain and the smell hung in the nostrils for hours afterwards. In the clothes, on the hands, Never did the children long so much for food as when they stood up from their meal under the hayrick. I could have picked a far more evocative or detail studded passage, but this will serve as a more credible instance. The question then is what do we do when we read this bit of narration? If we are reading with focus, if we are not skimming, then I would say that we are with every phrase exercising the linguistic imagination. The words on the page contain meanings or evoke them as we bring ourselves to them. Otherwise, they're perfectly transparent. To read, to grasp the sentence, dinner in the meadow was like all true joy, sweetest in anticipation, we need to test its sense, measure it alongside our own experience. My own response is to provisionally accept the general truth, checking it quickly against my own sense of what it is, or was when I was younger, to look forward to an event, even a special meal. Then with the first few phrases of the next sentence comes a countering backwash. I read of salt, codfish and rye, of thin porridge and sour blood pudding, and I promptly conclude that laxness must have meant his observation about true joy in an ironic spirit. After all, But in a split second, I counter the countering thought. I realize that I have to allow for enormous cultural difference, have to at least allow that these dishes, rigid though the menu is said to be, may in fact be ambrosial to Icelandic homesteaders. There follows a moment during which I imagine the food, drawing again on what fund of experience I possess. I weigh its delectability. Salt cod, yes, and rye bread, not entirely unappetizing, but thin porridge and sour blood pudding. I conjure these prospects, these imagined tastes, and read on, forming next the picture and sensation of rain streaming into the dishes while the workers are eating. The rain, then, must be drenching them thoroughly, and their weariness and stoicism are implicit in the fact that they simply sit and keep eating. That detail lends weight to the probability that laxness intended true joy ironically, a conclusion which seems justified by the mention in the next sentence of the vigorous odor of the fish. I could go on, but I think the point is made, that reading a work of imaginative literature does not take one away from the world, only from the place one happens to be sitting in. If anything, involved reading is a continual act of turning over and examining what one knows through personal experience, using the data of recollection to give heft and savor to scenes, and drawing as well on understandings of human motivation and the nuances of human behavior. Reading thus, I find that I am at once receiving and creating a world. My mind takes every sentence as a set of cues. The imagination is ceaselessly occupied, shuttling from detail to abstract assertion, bringing forth not just a concrete picture of a place and its people, but also trying to arrive at an understanding of the system of laws that governs all engagements in this writer's world. I interpret movement and gesture and supply elements where they are only suggested, like the stolidity of the workers eating in the rain. What is vital to recall, too, is the constant exertion made by the reader. He is not a transcendent god in that world, but an I'm sorry, I thought I meant... What is vital to recall, too, is the constant exertion made by the reader. He is not a transcendent god in that world, but an indwelling one. On his will and willingness hinges the fate of the author's creation. Virtual engagements, meanwhile, tend not to take place in the language matrix, certainly not at this level. And insofar as they call upon the imagination, they do so in a very different way. Unless one is literally reading a full text from a screen, which rarely happens when the text is substantial, most virtual encounters either situate the user in a context of conceptual possibility, asking her to make choices as a way of proceeding, the hypertext process, or else they feature the manipulation of pre-imagined entities in a digital prefab environment. The payoff comes when it does, in seeing how choices produce outcomes or engaging other minds in role-playing games, simulations, or diverse online exchanges. Virtual experiences by definition do not enforce or require an imagining of the real. Rather they point to a realm of connections and possibilities that stands independent. Systems that in some ways mimic hear the voice of the impatient antagonist. So what? What is the loss here? What uses do we have for so rigid a definition of the real? And why this insistence on imagination of a different kind? I feel myself getting agitated, needing to insist on the priority of the real, as fathers once insisted on the virginity of their marriageable daughters. The real is the real, I mutter, and the linguistic imagination is the only way we have of converting the outer real, bringing it inside ourselves, making it vitally a part of ourselves. It is the gift of being human, but it is a gift that must be earned. Where there is not linguistic imagination, the world grows narrow, becomes dominantly a business of sense impressions, or else it comes untethered and drifts away. Virtuality is a shimmer, a fantasy, a cul-de-sac posing as a road The great societal drive to virtuality must founder on the rock of mortality. It's that simple. So long as we are mortal, we are, whatever else we may dream up or venture, bound to the real. Limited thus, we have to concede that the ultimate truth about our lives is that they are still governed by organic laws of nature. Straying too far from the real must finally be seen as a kind of evasion, a primal denial Virtuality is, of course, many things, but centrally it is a flight from the limits of the organic. It represents a sharp U-turn away from the world we knew for long millennia, a place of confinement, harsh conditions, and certain suffering. At root, the drive toward the virtual is a drive to banish death. If not the fact of it, then the consciousness of it. The deeper we move into virtuality as a culture the more fervently we will seek that banishing to rid ourselves of the pain of anticipation, the physical horror of the experience, the loneliness it enforces, and the questions about spirituality it makes inevitable. The more distant we get from the confrontation, and we have succeeded to a remarkable extent in removing the evidence of the dying from our midst, the more terrifying the prospect becomes and the more beguiling become the possibilities of proxy worlds. Reading? Reading is the path back to the world, to the recognition and comprehension of necessity. In its way of distilling the real and accentuating the terms of our essential solitude, it cuts directly against the neural seductions of chip and screen media. Never mind the contents of the work, the act of reading is a particular concentration of the self. Suspended between our self-awareness and the imagining we have actively brought forth, we experience ourselves as though from a slight remove. This paradoxically feels like a centering, like a realizing of latent possibility. In the process, our sense of our own unrepeatable uniqueness is amplified. Though we have stood aside from our lives, we have been immersed in a process of joining our experience to the projections of another via language. The finest sense of intimacy fills us, an intimacy edged around with darkness. This is the human condition, the real, brought forth into the utmost clarity. Virtuality would coach us to a different sort of awareness, an awareness which submerges the pains of individual existence In the dream of collective sentience, some will embrace it as they are doing already. Others, I hope, will feel about in the dream for an escape hatch back to the actual. They will find the book and the special state of focus that restores to them the idiosyncratic and difficult and thrilling world, the original one. Thank you. I was warned that if I didn't leave, you'd stand there and clap all night, so I'm going to walk off.